church. It's good to be back um, after a crazy weekend. Um, it was a marriage retreat this weekend. Uh, honestly, it really, it really was a lot of fun. Uh, from Friday night, we played some awesome games, and I had music, and man, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Uh, some memories were made that uh, can't soon be forgotten. And um, there were some, th- uh, the games got a little bit out of hand. And so this could be my last sermon, getting to preach to you guys. I don't know what may happen at the main campus. We may all get fired today, but it was a lot of fun while we enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a fun ride. I've enjoyed being your pastor these six weeks. And uh, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, it, it was really, really fun. We had uh, all three of our campuses of Lindsay Lane, Maine, North, and East. And then we had Round Island. Uh, from, uh, you all know where Round Island is, but uh, them and their, about 10 or 12 couples from their church and their pastor came over. And man, we just had a blast together, just fellowshipping on Friday night. And then Saturday, uh, if you were there, you know it was probably like drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, it was about three and a half hours worth of content over four hours. I mean, we gave you about a 30 minute break and that was it. So um, we'll revisit that next year and maybe dial that back a little bit. Um, but outside of that, I thought it was a really, really good weekend. And uh, um, so here's the deal. So long as we all still have our jobs next week, we will do this again next year. So get out your phone and like set a notification for around January 20th and say, future self, sign up for the marriage conference, okay? Um, because it is so much fun and you do you'll, you want to be a part of it. It's, it's really, really cool. So... Um, we will do it next year. But this morning, we're going to skip ahead just a little bit to chapter 7 uh, of 1 Corinthians. And um, I intentionally scheduled uh, this passage for today t- um, because it is marriage-related. We're going to talk about family and marriage and some things. Um, so Because uh, I, I knew I, my mind was already, I had to teach for about 30 minutes on yesterday. So I knew my mind's in marriage mode, so I just wanted to go on and roll with that. So the, the text we're looking at today... Um, it's going to be have to do a whole lot with marriage, and uh, I titled it "When Family Issues Divide." And so we're still continuing on that rivalry idea. The truth that Paul brings out uh, from chapters five through seven is that the health of a church is directly proportionate to the health of its families, right? And so, um, if you think for a moment that all the issues that you have going on in your home if you're if you have a family or you're married or whatever even as a personal uh, as a as a single person if you think that the struggles that you have as a individual or as a family don't affect this body you're sorely mistaken right because the church is directly affected by what goes on in the homes if the families in a church are unhealthy guess how unhealthy the church will be right very unhealthy, all right? So chapter 5 begins. Now, this is just a fun, not a fun, it's really awful, but um, I, I thought it was, anyway, I got something funny I want to say about it. But chapter 5 begins with Paul calling out a guy in particular, okay? So chapter 5 begins, there's this guy who is uh, having an affair with his stepmom behind his dad's back, all right? So that's fun, isn't it? Um, but first off, listen to this. I don't know if you've ever think about this. So often we we do, we pull God's word like from reality. We think it's I don't I don't know. Maybe I do this, but like this was a real dude. Have you ever thought about that? 
in chapter 5, like 2,000 years ago, there was literally a dude who was sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul wrote a personal letter to his church family to deal with it. And then it got circulated to all the surrounding churches. And then, by God's sovereignty, it got put into the Bible for billions of people to read over the last 2,000 years. Like when, just a reminder to you that when you, like, I don't know who this guy is, poor guy. I pray he repented, okay? But, um, but man, what a, what a legacy to leave. I'm glad they ever mentioned him by name. But there are people. Like, these are real, these are real things that were going on in real churches. And so that's just a good reminder to us um, in a humorous way, but at the same time. Um, but what Paul says about chapter 5, we're not going to, sp- we're actually going to go to chapter 7, but um, in chapter 5, Paul, begin- uh, Paul, Paul is saying that this affair, of course, wasn't a good thing, but his response was for the church to address the issue in his life and lead him to repentance. So the reason why that text, because like why does it matter for us if this dude was sleeping with his stepmom, right? That shouldn't matter. But the reason it exists is because Paul is giving authority to the local church to speak into a family and lead them to repentance, okay? That's important for me to start with because I'm about to take that authority, okay? <laughs> Like I'm about to, I'm about to lean into chapter five's authority that that God gives me as a pastor of a local church, and then I'm going to jump to chapter seven and speak with that authority. Okay, um, and so again, uh, I'm, I'm just going to share with you what God's word says. And uh, but God gives the church authority to speak into the lives for the sake of the gospel. And so that that authority is clear. So I'm about to get in your business, okay? Chapter 7, let's look at it. And uh, so here's the deal. Uh, if, you, if you're a parent in the room and like, your kids are with you, you're gonna, I'm going to read this passage and you're going to start panicking. I promise you we're not going to talk about the content that's in the passage, okay? That sermon will be for another day and we'll give you warning, okay? But you'll see what I'm talking about when we get there, okay? So um, chapter 7, start in verse 1, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll just start working through it kind of piece by piece. Now, in response to the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And in the same way, a husband does not have right over his own body, but his wife does. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that uh, that we can stand on your word, God, that we know it's true, and God, we know that uh, that you have a word for us from it today. And so, Father God, use me to proclaim your truth uh, with passion and vigor today, and God, may we all uh, just kind of uh, look introspectively at what's going on in our lives as individuals um, and in our families and in our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, again, as I read that, some of you probably started squirming, and others of you were getting excited, and you thought, ah, I like this guy. This is going to be fun. That's not, okay. Um, we, we, uh, so good news, bad news. Uh, we're not talking about that particular issue today, but that'll be for another day. Um, but I want to show you three things that Paul is doing in these verses. And yes, my, my, my lens is marriage today. If you're not married, if you're a single person in the room, you're a widow, widower, just hang on, okay? 
at the end, the application is for all of us, but I've got to look through the lens that Paul was looking through, okay? So the first thing I want you to see, uh, first thing that we're going to look at is that Paul is writing in response to a letter from the church, okay? Um, there are probably many other letters. Uh, oftentimes we think that the letters that are in the text, that's all that Paul ever wrote. That's kind of crazy to think about. There were lots of other churches that Paul ministered to. Paul could have written hundreds Thousands, probably not thousands, that'd be a lot, but hundreds of other letters, right? Um, he could have. Um, and so oftentimes, we, for whatever reason, they just got lost by, by the grace of God and his sovereignty. We have the ones that we do for 2,000 years. Just think about that. Paul penned, or at least had someone pen these letters, and they've existed for 2,000 years. But we do know of at least two letters that precede the book we're studying. Okay? So the verse that we started with, um, it mentions another letter, but I want to show you first, first Corinthians five, nine, um, Paul, Paul says this in his letter, which we call first Corinthians. He said, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So there's a letter that Paul wrote that precedes first Corinthians. And then the verse that we read here, seven, one says now in response to the matters that you wrote about. Okay. So we have at least two letters. This is a little bit teachy, but hang in there with me. There are at least two letters that precede the book of 1 Corinthians. There are two letters that were written, okay? And so not only has Paul written one to them, but they've written one back. What probably happened in most situations, there was no Pony Express or email, right? And so someone had to carry the letter to the church, and then that person would stay and have the, have the letter read, and then they would communicate, they would talk, and then they would actually bring a uh, report back to Paul about what was going on in the church. And oftentimes, as you can imagine, they would say, uh, a letter that Paul wrote would garner lots of follow-up questions, <laughs> right? And so they would write down questions and then send it back. And so then they would go back to Paul, and it's this, this, this vicious cycle back and forth. Can you imagine, though, because oftentimes we think, I don't know, why did they have to write letters? Can you imagine being a Christian and being a church without the New Testament? Right? I mean, just imagine. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to worship? What are we supposed to preach on? <laughs> right? That's what the church is during this time. All they have are the oral uh, stories of Jesus' ministry. Probably none of that's even written down yet. Definitely not circulated to the level that it would be later. And then you know, all you have are Paul's letters in the Old Testament. Okay, a letter Paul wrote to you. <laughs> not like They're still not being circulated yet. And so there are lots of questions. I mean, we have questions now even though we have the New Testament. There are lots of questions. So that's why the Corinthians wrote that they had lots of questions. Now, for whatever reason, a lot of their issues had to do with sexual morality. I don't know what was going on in Corinth, but there was a lot of stuff that they had questions about. And, and the question based on Paul's response seems to be a pretty vulgar question. What did Paul say? A husband should only be with his own wife, and a wife should only be with his, her own husband. What question did they ask? You ever thought about that? <laughs> anyway, all right. There was clearly a question of, of uh, are, if my needs aren't being met, what, do, what can I do about it, right? That seems to be the question that they asked. Um, but Paul answers that with, you know, hey, your own wife, your own husband, okay? But then he dives into a few verses, 
And he really begins to pull at uh, an image that exists throughout the whole Bible, an image of biblical marriage. And, man, this is what I get excited about talking about because I talked about this weekend, and uh, it's, in the, it's in the text today. And so, number two, I want you to... So Paul's writing in response to a letter from the church. And then the second thing, Paul is playing off of an old, old image from Genesis. All right? So Paul says this, that relations outside of a marriage can't exist... Because there is something beautiful at work when a man and woman come together. He speaks of it in, in chapter 7, verse 4. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have right over his own body, but his wife does. Right? And so that may sound archaic and weird to you, especially the first part. Right? Because, I mean, that's the whole, that's, that's what our culture is arguing about now in the issue of abortion. Right? Who has authority, who can have authority over a woman's body? Right, and so that's the whole issue. That's that's an issue that our culture would have problem with. But what Paul says is that no wife has authority over her own body. And praise the Lord, he flipped it. Right? I mean, yeah, praise the Lord, yeah, because he said, and no husband has authority over her own body, over his own body. Right, and so he says there is this mutual owning of bodies that occur. And though he doesn't use the terminology identical. What he's riffing off of is an Old Testament image all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, right? It's more directly quoted in other places, this two becoming one flesh. You remember that? Why does a wife not have right over her own, own body? Because it's no longer hers. It's been joined with her husband in the same way for the husband. These things are shared because we are one flesh, and again, Paul wasn't the creator of this. Jesus himself spoke about it when he was asked about marriage, Matthew nineteen six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate, or no one separate, or no man put asunder for you KJV people, right? That's what gets said in ceremonies and certain uh, uh, ceremonies. What is it? A wedding. That's what it's called. And so that gets said at a lot of weddings, right? And that's the words of Christ. Um, but it doesn't originate with Jesus. It goes all the way back to in the beginning. And so this probably isn't going to be new to you, but uh, it's something I'm passionate about talking about. So Paul uh, in Genesis 1, not Paul, Paul wasn't alive yet, but Genesis 1 gives an overview of the universe that God created. Right from Genesis 1 through the first part of Genesis 2, what we get is this 10,000-foot view of God creating everything. Right? And so it's laid out over six days in which God strategically and in an organized way speaks the world and universe into existence. And then on the seventh day, he rests just to show us how important it is to prioritize rest. Um, but on the sixth day, what we see is this, Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So what we know is that God creates male and female, and he creates them on day six. But then what happens is Genesis chapter two comes along. Praise God for Genesis chapter two. Because what it does is it rewinds the tape back to Genesis six. I mean, day six, not Genesis six. He rewinds the tape back to day six and then zooms in. We're no longer at 10,000 feet. In fact, we get a personal, like, side-by-side -side look 
at what it was like for God to create male and female, what we find is that God did not speak man into existence. He forms him. And so to nerd out on you for just a second, the the Hebrew word for man is the word Adam, right? It's where we get Adam. That's why we call the first man Adam. But it's really the word Adam. And then God, so God forms Adam from what the Hebrews call Adamah, which is literally the dust of the earth. See how much more beautiful the Bible would be if we all knew Hebrew? Wouldn't it be beautiful? So God actually forms Adam from the Adamah. And so from the dust of the earth. And so we get this beautiful picture. So he forms Adam, but then he's not done. And he causes a deep sleep to fall over the man. And he takes a rib from him. And then from that rib, he forms woman. That's what Genesis 2 tells us. And so what God does is he forms one. And then from that one, he forms another to make two. Very good. That's important, okay? We may know our Bibles well, but y'all don't know math real good. But he takes the one, this is important, he takes the one and it becomes two. That's in Genesis 2, verse 23. Look at it with me uh, on the screens. You can turn there, but I won't give you time. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Right, so this is this is a this is something you need to see, uh, men. Um, Adam sings a song over his wife. He reads poetry over her. Ladies, you're welcome. Okay. <laughs> Got off my notes. All right, there it is. Okay, so verse twenty-four. So right after that, after Adam sings this beautiful song over his wife. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So let's look at what God did. Genesis 2 tells us that God formed one man, and then from that one man, he makes two. And then right after that, he says, now come back together and be one. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. That's, that's the whole point of why I'm sharing this with you, right? Because it's this beautiful picture that God could have just left man alone. God could have just made multiple of the same man, right? He could have just took the dust and made more and made more and made more. He didn't do that. He took one and pulled from this man a woman and then said, now come back together and live as one. This is why marriage is so hard, <laughs> right? It would have been easier if somehow we... I don't know how that would have worked, but God took us apart and made us different, made us unique, but then he called us to come back and live together as one. That's what's so beautiful about marriage, but it's also what makes it difficult because we're coming back together, though God formed us uniquely. But there's great intentionality in what God's doing. And it's this idea, this, back and forth, it's that idea that all the rest of the Bible points to. Like probably something like 80% of the time when marriage is talked about in the Bible in a teaching type of way or in any they use this imagery. So it's important. It's important for us to recognize what's going on. This is what, this is what the Bible pulls from when it speaks about marriage. But being one flesh, though we often think of it in a physical or sexual way, 
is not where the image ends, right? Becoming one flesh, though it is, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's imagery is uh, heavily evident in the act, it goes well beyond that, right? Um, when I do marriage counseling, I make sure people understand that you're not just, when the Bible says you're becoming one flesh, it ain't just talking about that. It's talking about everything, right? We now share everything. Uh, one of the things I talk about is that your families are now one. And some of you say, oh, me and not amen, but that's okay. Your families are now one, right? Um, your, 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 all, all of your life experience, everything that my wife experienced is now my experience because it directly affects me. Right, if my wife has wounds that, that, that she experienced emotionally as a child or as an adult, those things aren't her own anymore. We've been yoked up. And that's on my shoulder now too. And so I help carry that weight. My wife's spiritual journey is not her own anymore. It's now mine as well. And we carry that. I was saved at seven years old, but I was also saved at 15, or baptized at 15 anyway, progressively. Anyway, you have to hear her testimony sometime. It's really cool. But like that's also me because that's my wife, right? And so our stories are, are, are uh, financially, emotionally, spiritually, familially, like everything. We're together now. We share it all. And it's clear that being one flesh means so much more. And so Paul was asked a direct question about physical intimacy. But what he used a broad term to address it. And so what I'm going to do, I think is important for us, is to take Paul's argument that he's making because it does deal with being one flesh, which is a much more broad stroke. And I want to look at it as a whole. I want to take what Paul says, and I don't believe doing anything wrong with the text. I want to take what Paul says about one particular uh, part of being one flesh and broaden it out to show us truly what God's trying to say through this text. And so I believe when we properly study a passage like this in light of the rest of the Bible, we can draw applications in, in different areas. And so um, if, if, you're, if you are the note taker in the room, second Second point was Paul is playing off. Y'all, if y'all are wondering why I've got these loose pages, I left my notebook in my wife's car. I have like this really awesome leather notebook that I put my sermon notes in every week, and I can't find it. So I'm hoping it's in my wife's car. All right, so I've got loose pages, and it's a little chaotic today. Um, but so number two was that, that Paul, is, Paul is, is playing off of this old, old image from Genesis. But number three is this. Paul is saying so much more than it seems he is. So he, he's, he's, uh, he's riffing off of this f one flesh term that's very broad. And, and, but I want to look first at what Paul's saying. He says, because you entered into a marriage relationship with another person, you don't always get what you want deep down. That's what Paul's saying, right? Annie, John, and Brittany talked about this uh, at the marriage retreat this weekend, that a healthy marriage is made up of two losers, which is the most encouraging thing we got all week. But what, what they meant by that was that you've got to be willing to take one for the team. 
right? As a man, um, if my desire for certain things is greater than that of my wife, I can't always get what I want. I've got to be willing to take one for the team. I've got to be willing to go to bed a loser sometimes. And I've got to be okay with that. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, man, your body's not your... Paul, Paul's pulling on both of these sides. He says, right, your body's not your own. And your wife also owns it. But then he flips it around too. And so there's this mutual give and take that has to exist in a marriage. You have to agree to find a middle balance of intimacy that keeps both parties satisfied. And this takes humility, doesn't it? And willingness to meet someone's needs instead of your own. And that's what makes marriage so hard is because it's all based on humility. And so that's what Paul, I believe, is saying in these passages is that, that he, he's, he's using the one flesh analogy to say, you have got to put the needs of your spouse ahead of your own. And so the principle of that can clearly be seen in many other places across God's word. The challenge from God through the Bible is for his people to live a life of humility and that they don't always seek their own good, but they seek the good of others. That's the foundational piece of our marriage. If there is no humility on either part in a marriage, it will not last. A healthy marriage is not two people seeking their own desires. A healthy marriage is two people seeking the betterment and livelihood of the other person above themselves. A healthy marriage is two losers, two people who are willing to lose. That same mentality is true for fathers to their children. There is nothing more humbling and frustrating, aggravating than being a father, right? The fact that I've got to fix my own kid's plate before I can eat is one of the hardest things to do when you're hungry, like, we go to my grandmother's house, and she's got this big, awesome spread. And I'm, like, in line, and I'm fixing my plate, and I turn around, and Kelly's holding three. And I go, oh, man. So I sit my plate down, and I grab one, right? Because I'm thinking about myself. I'm hungry, and I want to get the dark meat. I don't want the dark meat to be gone. If I fix my kid's plate, and then I get in line, I miss the dark meat. I get stuck with that dry, white garbage, all right? But like this is this is so humility, right? It's something that takes that's what it takes in marriage, but not just in marriage, but in all relationships. And so let me just speak to the men for just a moment. In our marriages, I'm about to zoom out, so give me just a second. Men, we want badly to provide for our families financially. Like I know men who work multiple jobs or they work 12-hour shifts or, man, we, we want to provide for our families. We'll do whatever it takes, right? We want to protect them. We put in a security system or keep a gun under your pillow or whatever you do to provide for your family, like protection, right? You want to, you want to protect them. Or maybe you just have big dogs outside, whatever you have. But you want to provide for them. Why is it? that we're willing to go whatever length, whatever length to provide for our family financially or physically and not spiritually. Men, right? 
We will do whatever it takes to provide for them, except for spiritual things. More than your family needs more money in their bank account. You could live in a smaller house. You could sell a car. You could do whatever. But one thing you cannot sacrifice is the spiritual nature of your house. And so we're always willing to go. But let me flip it, flip it to you women and get y'all mad. How does your humility get fleshed out in the home? For your spouse, your children? Are you seeking to provide for them financially, physically, emotionally, whatever the case may be? Are you, what links are you willing to go to to provide for them? I know people who, who homeschool their own kids, right? And just are willing to give everything, teach them themselves. I don't know how you do it. It was hard enough to learn math myself, let alone teach it to another human being who picks their nose, right? All the time. Like, that's hard. I don't know how y'all do it. But you're willing to do it. But listen, we cannot sacrifice the spiritual things too. Like if we're willing to do, if we're willing to go to that length for their education, why can't we go to the same length for spiritual? Right? We are willing to give up every Saturday and two nights a week for practice, for sports, at the one in a billion chance that they're going to play in the NFL. We sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice Everything but spiritual things. Humility. We, we, we are giving people, any, anybody in here who's a parent, if you're a spouse or whatever, you do show humility, but you show it in the wrong areas. Right? You see this. We all know someone, right? If you don't want to look in the mirror, that's fine, but that's what God did with me as I was preparing this. Paul continues, uh, so Paul really wraps this up with this marriage, um, just showing us that, man, marriage is about humility. And without it, our families are going to fall apart. But then he continues this humble vibe by bringing in the unmarried folks, all right? So single folks in the room, I got a word for you too. He talks about unmarrieds and widows. And listen, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is not taken to be a command. It's taken to be a principle. And what Paul says is that it's better for you not to marry. But again, Paul's not saying don't marry if you're, <laughs> if you're single or a widow. What Paul is saying is that there is a principle of humility. And if the only reason you're getting married is because you want something for yourself, then you shouldn't get married. Because you could serve God a whole lot better as a single person. Paul says maybe the most humble thing a single person can do is not get married. But, but maybe not. Maybe you can get married and show that humility in your marriage. That's fine. I think in the old, so Paul talks about that. And then he said, I think in the most ultimate view of humility, Paul even tells a man working as a slave. Don't fight for your freedom. Stay right where you are and show humility right there. Now, slavery looked a lot different. Um, it was more like indentured servanthood. It wasn't captured people and things like that. 
But Paul says, if you're a slave and you got saved, man, stay there and serve Jesus and serve your slave owner. Imagine that. Like the Christianity was the, uh, uh, people give Christianity a hard time about, you know, and we haven't always reacted well to social issues, okay? But Christianity at its core was a place where everybody was on the same playing field. Like you literally, in the early church, in these churches, you had slaves who were coming in and worshiping right beside their slave owner. You had women who had no voice in culture coming in next to their husband and worshiping. And, and though you may, not, you may read scripture different, we'll talk about it sometime in my time here, they were able to speak and pray and talk in the church house when they had no voice outside. That's what God's house provided. It was, the, it was a place of unity where everybody was on the same playing field. And then here Paul says, hey, if you're a slave, you've already, you've already experienced the true freedom from sin. Just stay where you are. Again, he's not saying if a slave fought for his freedom and got freed that he was being disobedient. He's saying show humility where you're at. If you're married, show humility. If you're a father, show humility. A mother, show humility. If you're single, show humility. No matter what situation you're in, look for an opportunity to be humble in that situation. You see, marriage is not the end. Praise God. <laughs> I'm 11 years in, and I know it's going to get sweeter and better. But I, pray, I know heaven's going to be better. The presence of God is better. See, marriage is this micro little environment, my household where I have a wife and I have two little rugrats in my house every day. And what, God, what Paul tells me here is to show humility as I lead them. But what, what God is preparing me for in my home is then to leave my home and do the same thing. See, your home is an opportunity for you to learn what humility looks like before you go talk to your boss who's a jerk. Right? Or before you get cut off in traffic. Or before your doctor changes your appointment without calling you. Whatever the case, right? He's saying the home is a place where you can learn what it looks like to act outside the home. So I think if we begin to look at our marriages that way, because the church is the same thing, right? Like, like what you experience at home, what you, what you learn in your home as you, I mean, Parenting is a practice, and what you're learning there is you're learning skills that the church needs. We need humble men and women to come and to lead and to shepherd and to, to minister to people here. And it takes humility to do all that. So Paul, may, Paul is definitely addressing some direct family issues. Whoever the poor guy who was sleeping with his stepmother, like he was addressing a particular issue. But it's so much bigger, right? It's so much more. When God's people live their lives in humble submission, the Christ is strengthened. The church is strengthened, not the Christ. The church of Christ is strengthened. Amen? Um, I want to challenge you guys, uh, just like Paul did to the church at Corinth, whatever situation you're in, uh, find contentment, and humility where you are, whatever it looks like. It looks different for all of us. 
But whatever situation you're in, God's calling us to a life of humility. It means we don't get our way every single time. It means we're going to have to be a loser sometimes. We're going to have to take one for the team. As Brittany King so eloquently said yesterday, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> this is what God's called us to be and do, okay? Um, today, um, I don't know how God may have used this, um, but what I do know is that Jesus Christ gives us the perfect uh, image of humility. Here's a guy, a being, a person, who had ever who had the fullness of God in his person, and yet he gave it up to take on flesh. And then he lived the perfect life that you and I can't even pull off in a hundred years, but yet laid down his life. Right? Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you need to. Because you'll never live this life of humility unless Christ changes your heart. I'd love to talk with you about how you can accept Jesus Christ and how you can change your life. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it today. Um, for some of you, maybe, uh, I know in the second service, when my wife is here, I'll, we're going to spend time at this altar because uh -huh, God, God opened up some things in my life that I need to go to God about. And so I want to be a better dad, I want to be a better husband, and I want to be a better pastor to you guys. And so we're going to spend time at the altar. You may want to, too. Don't be emotionally moved by the tears. Either way, okay, because it's just a lack of sleep more than anything, okay? Um, but, also, but if you do, if you want to come to the altar and pray with your family or pray with your spouse or just pray by yourself, then this, man, this, that's what this is for. Again, if, you, if you're new to church stuff and you're not been around, this is weird to come forward and pray. You can pray about where you are. But what this does is I know there are people in this, in this body who anytime somebody moves forward, they lift up prayers for them, even if we don't know your name. That's what I do. And so um, this also will be open. You may want to bring any kind of prayer that you have. You may want to come talk a bit to me about joining this church. I'd love to talk to you about what that process looks like. Um, but we're going to move into a time. We're going to sing one more song. Worship team, y'all come on up. We're going to sing one more song. And in this last song, uh, just be a time of response. You're welcome just to sing and worship. Or you can pray where you are or come forward and talk to me or pray at this altar. But um, we just we want to provide an opportunity for you to respond to how God may have led. I'm going to pray. As soon as I finish praying, let's all stand together and let's respond. Father, we love you and we thank you for this word. And God, I, I know, God, you've been, you've been using it to wrestle uh, with me this week. And uh, God, I'm thankful uh, that I got to preach this morning this message, God, that's meant so much to me. Uh, I pray, God, that you would use us for your glory, and may we all respond in the way that you have us to today. In Jesus' name.